This is a uh, dangerous sermon to give this weekend of all weekends. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Now we're going to chat about how we consume things in our lives. <laughs> Let me ask you a series of questions as I begin. Is living life a good thing? Well, yeah, of course, right? Life is a beautiful gift from God. No trick question. Life is beautiful. Okay, so what do we most basically need to live this life? Things like oxygen, food, water, shelter. Okay, so is it a bad thing to eat or drink or have shelter? No, certainly not. We were created with the ability and the necessity to consume things. Now, what do we need in order to meet these basic needs in our world? Money, right? Now, you won't get very far at Costco or Shawarma Palace without money. Neither could you pay your rent or your mortgage or your water bill without money. So, next question. Is it bad to have money? Getting harder? No, it's not inherently bad to have money. We need money in order to survive because we were created to consume. It's part of being human. It's part of living life in this world, which God happened to pronounce very good when he designed us this way. But we humans tend to corrupt things that God made good. Such is the case with consumption. So where do we go wrong? We go wrong, I believe, by taking consumption to extremes. Right? Many good things taken in excess can become wrong, sinful even. We tend to absolutize consumption and shape our lives around it to the extent that, that we believe that all of our needs can be met by pursuing money or material things. And most of us never even realize that a sinister worldview has taken root in our hearts. The worldview that I'm speaking about, you could call consumerism, materialism, something like that, which may just be the most powerful competitor to a Christian worldview in our world. You could describe consumerism as the pursuit of fulfillment by accumulating wealth and everything that comes with it. Okay, the pursuit of fulfillment by accumulating wealth and everything that comes with it. Time magazine recently publicized a study about Americans' spending habits. And it showed that on average, for every minute of every day, Americans spent $6 million. Okay? In, in every minute, that means there was 57,000 credit card transactions. Walmart had $530,000 in sales. Apple sold 50,000 apps. McDonald's sold 1,400 burgers and 2,000 pounds of fries. 
Every minute. Now you're probably like, well, Canadians have to be better than that, right? (laughs) Correct. Barely. TD Economics also did a study. It was in the Star newspaper, and it found that for every $17,900 that Americans spent, Canadians spent $17,000. So if if that 5% difference makes you feel superior, go for it. (laughs) But on the other hand, we Canadians also spent five times more per capita on alcohol. So there's that. Now, I know none of you need to be convinced that we live in an extremely consumeristic culture. What you may not realize is just how much this has influenced each of our hearts as we have lived immersed in the extremes and the excess. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and bow our hearts and then pray that God would illuminate our hearts today, that he would cleanse them, and that he would realign them to his own. Heavenly Father, We do pray that. We recognize today as we sing that we are prone to wander from you. We are prone to leave the God that we love. And so we come today recognizing that humbly. Uh, We submit to your word. May your spirit speak to us now in these moments. Convict us where we need conviction. Open our eyes where we're blind. And encourage us today with your mercy. May you truly be the treasure that we seek above all else. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you've been with us the past couple weeks, you know we've begun a study on worldviews or different ways that people view reality. We've called them heart orientations, the way we orient our heart. And it is my contention that the orientation of our heart determines everything about us. How we think, what we do, how we respond, what we say, everything about how we live comes from our heart. And Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And because of this, it is crucial that we examine our hearts to ensure that they stay on the right track or get back on the right track. So what we want to do today is to give ourselves a reality check. To ask, does this worldview that we're going to talk about describe me and my heart? All right? As I said earlier, we were created by God as consumers. Okay? In Genesis 1, God tells us to exercise dominion over the natural world. He tells us to eat and drink. And really everything that we do, eat or drink or wear or live in, comes at some level from the created order from creation. He embedded in us this creativity to develop societies and industries and economics. We have this innate responsibility to to use resources and a calling to, to steward them well. So consumerism is not necessarily all bad. It's not all good either, though. To get a better grasp of what consumerism is and what it looks like, I'm going to go through those eight questions that I've given you that every worldview inevitably answers in some way. Eight questions that you will inevitably answer in some way. Number one, what underlies reality? 
So what is the foundation that underlies what we believe is real, if there is a foundation? Now, technically, for this one, you could be consumeristic and hold to a whole variety of different views here. Now, you could believe in, in God or gods. You could believe in that the natural order is all there is in the world. But practically speaking, consumerism tends to center people's worlds on themselves. So it's got some of the same roots as individualism, which we looked at last week. Centers the world on ourselves. Number two, what is real? Or what are our convictions about what the world is like? Here are a few basic convictions, key convictions. First, pursuing personal fulfillment is desirable. Okay, so ask yourself, what does personal fulfillment look like to you? We may have slightly different ideas on this, but I would contend that we all pursue it. We all pursue some kind of personal fulfillment. And so the first conviction, this is desirable. Second conviction, accumulating wealth or things leads to said fulfillment. Okay? Steve Wilkins and Mark Sanford say this, this, the conviction in our culture, although usually unspoken, is that you can buy fulfillment, or at least that fulfillment can, cannot be attained without the proper commodities. Third conviction. Not only does wealth lead to fulfillment, wealth is power. Okay, there, Wealth, if you think about it, offers many different kinds of power to us in our world. There is purchasing power. So the more money you have, the more options you have in life. There's the power of status. So how you appear to those around you. Our Homes, our cars, our clothes, our haircuts, they all feed into the status of those around us. There's also the power of security, which gives the, the impression of control that we have over our lives. One way we pursue this kind of power is with our excessive insurance policies. Can ensure everything. Last conviction for now. Whatever doesn't bring us fulfillment or power can be discarded. So whether that be a hamburger or the heaps of garbage that we send off to landfills or a job or a church or a marriage, things are disposable. Okay? Number three, who are we? Who are we? Where does our identity lie as human beings? Now, if we view ourselves primarily as consumers of our environment, then ultimately our identity gets inextricably tangled up in what we own. Right? Like, I am rich, or I am middle class, or I am poor, or I am a homeowner. I drive a Corvette. I belong to this level of society. We set our online profile pictures to us standing next to maybe new homes or new cars, spiffy vehicles, or eating at a fancy restaurant. Facebook often reveals more about ourselves than we might realize. The natural outgrowth of all this, though, of viewing our identity as consumers and 
and what we own, the natural outgrowth of consumerism is seeing other people as objects to consume. Now, no one would outright admit that, but plenty of people live it. Using significant others or spouses or children to attain status for ourselves. Pressuring kids to perform in school or sports or music because of how it reflects on us. Seeing relationships with others primarily as a means to fulfill our own needs, not to serve them. Eventually, people aren't only seen as consumable, they're disposable and replaceable. We replace marriage with divorce and one-night stands. We replace child-rearing with long-term birth control or even cats and dogs. We replace community and fellowship with internet technology. We replace love with pornography. And it becomes nearly impossible to see other people as made in the image of God. As for question number four, what is true? Consumerism consumerism is a pretty flexible worldview here. You can believe a, a whole host of things are true and still pursue what you want. Number five, what is good or what is good and evil? Well, the greatest possible good is to fulfill yours or others' felt needs. And in order to, to meet those needs, I'm not saying this is all the time, but sometimes immoral behavior can be at times excused as good. Right? So things as like coveting or greed or selfish ambition, even stealing or lying or fraud which would then make it both truth and morality pretty relative, pretty subjective when it comes right down to it. Listen, it's not wrong to, to fudge some numbers on your timesheet or your tax return. Or to take that second job or that promotion, even if you'll never see your family. Because after all, you're taking care of what needs to be taken care of. That's good. Number six, what's important? What are the values of consumerism? That really could be anything, right? Whatever you want, whatever you feel you need, whether that be bank account balances, bigger homes, new barbecues, Beyonce's music. (laughs) In a consumeristic society, it is very easy to determine the answer to this question in people's lives. Just look at what people spend money on. Okay, that's usually what they value. So what do you buy? Whether or not you're aware of it, you're revealing something about your heart. You're revealing what you value. And more often than not, we place the highest value on money itself. Seventh, what is wrong with this world? What is fallen? What needs to be fixed? Simple answer, I don't have enough. Or I need more. Or just a little bit more. Consumerism 
places supreme importance on fulfilling our needs and desires. But whenever we actually get what we want, we inevitably want more. Right? It is a vicious cycle which we can't ever seem to break free from. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. If our goal is to be better off and better off, continually moving up, moving forward, getting a bit more fulfilled, then what we need in life is always just a little bit more. So, what can be done? Where is the salvation for this problem? It's in earning a little bit more, or buying a little bit more, or upgrading a little bit more. See, if you think about it, salvation in any religion including Christianity, is all about fulfilling our needs. We just define our greatest needs quite differently. But consumerism is is tapping into that instinctual need for, for, for fulfillment, which means consumerism really can be seen as a secular religion. By telling us that we can meet all our needs by what we earn or accumulate or consume, salvation for consumerism is in money or possessions. The old biblical term for those two things combined is mammon, right? And you probably know what Jesus said about that. You cannot serve both God and mammon, or money, possessions. Some of us here may suspect that we struggle with consumerism, and yet we struggle to admit it. But I have a feeling... Many of us don't struggle to admit this. We struggle to even see this. We are naturally blind as bats when it comes to our money. Tell me, is there any sin easier to see in others and yet so difficult to see in ourselves? Tim Keller says, Jesus warns people far more often about greed than about sex Yet almost no one thinks they are guilty of it. Therefore, we should all begin with a working hypothesis that this could easily be a problem for me. Even though it is clear that the world is filled with greed and materialism, almost no one thinks it is true of them. They're in denial. So why is this? Why is it nearly impossible to see our own greed and consumerism? I I believe it's because we have this terrible habit of only comparing ourselves to people nearby, to people directly around us, right? And many people around us happen to have more money or more things than we do. So we think, well, I'm not as well off as they are. They're richer than me. I must be living pretty modestly, right? I'm getting by bomb less than them. Now, you can think this way no matter what your level of living is. But if we bothered to compare ourselves to the rest of the world, we would see that pretty much all of us are disgustingly rich. Besides, you don't even need to be rich to have a consumeristic worldview. You can, have, you can have very little and still buy into the lie that you just need a little bit more. 
You can still have the mindset that the money can prove to be a solution in your life. So, those of you who are fellow believers here, have you capitulated in this area at all? Have you given the world some ground in your heart? Even now, just ask the Spirit to reveal to you your heart. Have you joined the rat race for more and more and more and more? Do you see life as a competition to see who can die with the most toys? Do you perhaps feel like you only have worth or value if you're actually making money? Have you tied your identity at all into what you own or what you make? Have you been treating others around you as commodities to use instead of people to love? These are the questions I think we need to ask. Let me give you a picture to describe what I think we've done with our faith and our wealth. All right? On my route to and from church here, there are a number of funny-looking trees along the side of the road. And there's a, there's a ton down Riverside Drive. There's a number here on Main Street as well. You'll see them even as you leave today. They look strange because the tops of them have been hollowed out into a V, right? And the reason is because power lines go right through the middle of them. And so, I, now, I am baffled by this. I'd I'd love to know the mind that had the bright idea to either plant trees right underneath power lines or put power lines right over top of trees. I don't get it at all. But as it stands, every year the city has to send people out to these trees and to mutilate them, basically, to prevent them from growing into the power lines. Because we'd have major problems if they did, right? We'd either have downed wires or we'd have trees on fire. Anyway, here's what I picture. Our faith is like those trees. Our wealth is like the wires. Put another way, the tree is a Christian worldview, and the wires are a consumeristic worldview. We think that we can grow up in our faith while keeping a spot in our hearts for wealth. But as our tree grows, we realize that they conflict. They don't mix well. Our faith starts encroaching on our wealth and creates sparks, even fires. So what do we do? We just keep trimming our faith back, hollowing it out. In order to try to allow Christianity and consumerism to share space in our hearts. We overlook or or downplay the biblical commands related to money or possessions. We keep growing in other areas of our lives, but not this one. And soon enough, we've got this deformed, mutilated faith. Instead of doing what we should have done all along, simply moving the wires out of the heart. So how can we free our hearts from pursuing and treasuring 
earthly things. How do we do that? Well, first of all, we need a reality check. We need to unfog our glasses and clearly see the bankruptcy of consumerism. So I'm going to give you two points from God's words to renew our minds with truth about this, to give us a reality check. Then I'm going to give you a final point about how we can fight to maintain a godly worldview here. Okay, so first, I want you to see that that consumerism is reductionistic. It cannot account for true reality. It reduces our diverse assortment of needs in our life to consumer things that consumer goods can meet. Right? But we have so many needs in our lives that money can't buy, that it just can't satisfy. Consumerism proves to be self-defeating as it fails at its own purpose of meeting our needs. Here's the way I put the first point. Pursuing wealth provides unsatisfying substitutes for reality. Pursuing wealth provides ultimately unsatisfying substitutes for reality. Once you've written that down, if you're taking notes, go ahead and open your Bibles. Turn to Matthew 6 with me. Matthew chapter 6, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, that can be found on page 811. Jesus is speaking here, telling his disciples why they shouldn't pursue treasure here on earth. Follow along with me, starting in verse 19. Jesus says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Did you catch that? Okay. Wherever you accumulate treasure, your heart will inevitably gravitate to that. You absolutely cannot pursue earthly wealth and think that your heart won't follow. And Jesus says, it's foolish to pursue earthly wealth anyway because it just doesn't last. Right? Fabrics decay. Metals rust. Almost anything can be stolen from you. So, here's a reality check for you. No matter how many insurance policies or alarms you have, your stuff isn't safe. One day, think about it, someone else will live in your home. Your bike, your car, whatever your mode of transportation, will likely be in a junkyard. Your phone is going to bite the dust one day and be e-waste. Your toys will be in a thrift shop. Some of you say, well, that's okay. I mean, at that point, I'll just have a better home or a better car or a better phone by then. Well, sure, maybe. And one day, you'll die. Then what will you have? At that point, even your money that you so preciously accumulated will be dispersed to other people's bank accounts. 
Now, I'm not saying that all these things aren't real. Okay, they, they are. But heaven and its treasure are more real. Hence Jesus' command to pursue what lasts. In verse 20, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. This is what lasts forever. The, the pursuit of earthly wealth is really a pursuit of counterfeits. I like how Wilkins and Sanford put this. They say, since virtue cannot be purchased, consumerism tells us that a lot of money will make us socially respectable. Money won't buy love, but it can pay for sex. Immortality is not for sale, but health care, life insurance, and large headstones are. When we try to get love, friendship, genuine respect, and spiritual vitality from consumer goods, we find that they cannot deliver. The real need is still there. A counterfeit never replaces the real thing. So, continue on in Matthew 6 with me, verse 22. says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So briefly, this again is just making the point, our whole lives are determined by what's inside of us. Okay? And then, that's when Jesus busts out his famous statement. Verse 24, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Did you ever wonder why Jesus says we can't serve both God and money? Or mammon? Why does he say that? It's because our wealth naturally attempts to displace and replace God. It promises us things that God gives us. Security, status, satisfaction. It claims to do things that only God can do, such as being almighty or in control of your life. Ever heard of the almighty dollar? Finally, money demands our allegiance, just like God. It competes for our love as we daydream or fantasize about making more or having more. In both Colossians and Ephesians, Paul talks about coveting and bluntly calls it idolatry. Money also feeds our self-idolatry, deceiving us to think that we can be in control of our lives. You don't need to to have a ton of money, or to spend all your money in order to worship it. It can be an idol of security or control for you. Or simply your main pursuit and desire. The very wealthy actor Jim Carrey once said, I love this coming from him, I hope everybody could get rich and famous and will have everything they ever dreamed of so they know that it's not the answer. Even if you achieve your wildest dreams, consumerism ultimately proves disappointing. It's unrealistic. It cannot solve your issues like insecurity or powerlessness or insignificance. It cannot 
give you those things. It can't even satiate all our desires for pleasure or comfort here on earth. And when it comes right down to it, real life, reality, real life is made up of so much more than just wealth. Jesus says in Luke 12, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness or greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Another unrealistic side of consumerism is related to our identity. Though we were created as consumers, as we talked about, consumers of material goods, we are not only consumers. And we were never truly owners of what we have either. We were created as stewards. You know the difference between an owner and a steward? Right? Owners actually possess things. Stewards just take care of them. And from Genesis 1 on, it is clear that God has entrusted us humans to take care of many things in our lives, but he never abdicated his ownership of them. We are only entrusted with what we have for a time, a temporary time at that. So what I believe scripture reveals about our identity is this, that we are temporary stewards over a variety of blessings. We are spiritual, we're temporary stewards over a variety of blessings. Like I said, stewardship's a consistent theme throughout the Bible. Flip over a few pages to Luke 16, if you would. That's on page 875, Luke 16. In verse 10, Jesus says this, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then... You have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, that's our mammon now, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? And then again he says his, you cannot serve both God and money, little speech. But you see in, I think it's verse 11 there, that term true riches, What he's saying is that our wealth right now is not true riches. Yet, we are entrusted with them for now. Kind of like a trial run. See if we can be trusted. Now, our financial life is not some separate compartment from our spiritual life. We tend to do that. We tend to separate things into boxes and compartments. Jesus says we're to love God with everything. We are. That encompasses everything. God sees every decision we make. And God cares about how we're handling his stuff. Turn to another passage with me. 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6. Again, Pew Bibles, that's page 993 to 994. 1 Timothy 6. This describes for us what's coming. And I believe that this really should overshadow everything here. In verse 14 of 1 Timothy 6, 
Paul tells Timothy, a young pastor, to do this. Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now, this is, he's talking about this mindset of what's coming. Jesus is coming. This immortal, powerful, holy God is coming. And we should have this mindset too, this heavenly mindset, to set our hearts on eternity. And in the meantime, here's our charge. Verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Those verses, take them as a command. charge you to do this. Wealth tends to make us haughty or prideful, and we begin to hope in them, thinking that our lives will work out, that we will be fulfilled when we have riches of some kind. But riches are an incredibly volatile, uncertain reality. So it calls it the, the uncertainty of riches. Proverbs 23, 4 and 5 says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Have you ever tried to catch a bird with your bare hands? How'd that go? Right? Think of trying to sneak up on an eagle. That's what it's talking about. An eagle. As soon as you get near it, it takes a flight. Escapes you easily. And that's what wealth tends to be like. We try to capture it. Try to sneak up on it. But as soon as we get near, Proverbs says, it sprouts wings and flies off. On the other hand, while earthly wealth is uncertain, eternity is certain. Do you actually believe that? I wonder sometimes if we believe heaven is actually real. Eternity is real. That's what God says here. That this is coming. Keep the commandment unstained and free and firm approach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He will display this. And storing up treasure there in eternity is what then gives us, as he calls, a good foundation for the future. So how do we do this? How can we keep our eyes off the temporary and onto the eternal? We need a way to, to maintain our view of true reality. Thankfully, I believe God tells us how. And it's not just deciding, you know what, 
I need to stop pursuing wealth so much. (laughs) That won't work. That's just behavior modification. That's addressing the symptoms, not the disease. What we need is heart transformation. And here's how I believe we can do that. In order to maintain a grasp on true reality, we must set our hearts upward in gratitude and outward in generosity. We have to fix our hearts upward in gratitude and outward in generosity. I think we can see both these heart orientations here in 1 Timothy 6. We aren't to set our hopes on worldly wealth, he says, but instead to set them on God. Verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes or set your heart on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, when we, when we get a picture of this, when we see that, it, that our focus shouldn't be on earthly things, we often go so wrong there. Because we then conclude that, well, life's going to stink. Right? We can't pursue pleasure, so we should shun good food or drink. We should live in a shack, wear ratty clothes, shouldn't own anything nice. Right? We should buckle down and get set for a hard, miserable life until Jesus returns. Wrong. Okay? According to this verse, God does what? God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. To enjoy. So, your turkey dinner this weekend? God gave it to you to enjoy. The home you live in, your wardrobe, the variety of possessions you may have, you're allowed to appreciate them, to enjoy them. Savor the tastes and smells and feels and sights and sounds of the life that God has given you. The key thing to realize here is who provides these things for us. It's God, not ourselves. And we should be thankful. Express your gratitude to God. It's not wrong to enjoy something as long as, as long as your enjoyment doesn't terminate on the thing. Okay? Let the every blessing turn into praise, thanksgiving in your hearts to God. This is the worldview we need to cultivate in our hearts, to set our hopes on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And let me forewarn you, you will never be able to fix your heart on the right things until you get the right God on the throne of your heart. Not going to happen. You cannot serve God and another rival master. 
We have to, even today, we have to repent of our greed, our envy, our self-centeredness, our idolatry. And then we need to run to the cross of Christ and find mercy for those sins there. To see how Jesus left the immeasurable riches of glory in heaven in order to save us. To see with new eyes what it cost Jesus to pay it all. To pay the debt of our sin. To see him lay his entire life down. To purchase what we never could afford. We cannot earn our salvation by what we do. We can never buy it ourselves, unless you want to pay the eternal price. You cannot buy salvation no matter what you do. But Jesus already did. He already paid it all. And when we set our hopes not on ourselves, but on God... We receive what Jesus bought. Forgiveness for our sins. Freedom from our guilt. Life forevermore. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Are you rich in the things of God? You received what Jesus bought. If you've never come to the place of of placing all your hopes on Jesus, I would urge you to today. Everything else is going to disappoint you. It will. He is the only certain Savior. I implore you to to cast your sins aside, run to him in your hearts, even now. And take hold of what 1 Timothy 6.19 calls, that which is truly life. We can only take hold of life because Jesus took hold of death for us. But now we can take hold of that which is truly life. Notice, though, what that means. Our pursuit of self-pleasure and self-fulfillment, that's not true life. Worldly wealth is not and never has been truly life. It's deceived us. Jesus is life. We need to surrender all we are. And all we have to him. And once our hearts have been centered on him, reoriented to him, he invariably turns our hearts back outward in generosity. That's what, when we can obey the commands of verse 18, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share And it's through doing these kinds of things, expressing extravagant generosity, that we actually accumulate heavenly treasure. 
thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You wonder how to set your heart on heaven, become rich in what matters. Once you've come to Jesus, they're to do good, be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So I ask, How generous are you with what you have? That reveals something about your heart. And if we've been changed by the grace of God, it should radically affect how we give. Tim Keller says, When you see Christ dying to make you his treasure, that will make him yours. Money will cease to be the currency of your significance and security, and you will want to bless others with what you have. To the degree that you grasp the gospel, money will have no dominion over you. Think on his costly grace until it changes you into a generous people. Christian life really is a continual journey of treasuring Christ more and more every day. That's the more we should be pursuing. When we keep our hearts set on him, on his grace and his gospel and his return, that's how we keep our hearts in the right place, with the right heart orientation. Jesus is life. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, forgive us. Forgive us our raising up of rival gods in our hearts. You alone are worthy of our devotion. We recognize that this morning. Where everything else falls short, only Jesus, you satisfy. Help us run to you. Help us to find your grace, even for the first time today. We come to you now in repentance. We pray that you would take our hearts. Here's our heart, Lord. Take and seal them for your courts above. In Jesus' name, amen.